0: Thank you for that. Of course. I'm, I'm so happy to be on.
1: I always start these podcasts with not the perfunctory, but the honest. How are you? How, how are you doing right now?
0: I am. I'm okay. I mean, you know, it's this is quite the time in, in American history and, you know, as someone who studies anti-black racism, um, you know, I'm simultaneously enraged to, to see the deathly effects of that racism, but simultaneously energized to see all of the people resisting that racism.
1: How are you holding up with the COVID-19 pandemic on top of all of this, as the as the underscore of all of this? I, I think
0: that that has been difficult for me, partly because so we, my colleagues and I, we, we partnered with the COVID tracking project to build this COVID racial data tracker. And so we're, it's like the premier tracker of racial data on COVID. And so, you know, I'm seeing the data coming in um, and the disparities all over the country. And so that's been difficult. And then simultaneously, my wife, Sadiqa, her f- family is, in her hometown is Albany, Georgia, and Albany, Georgia. And that general area of southwest Georgia has one of the worst outbreaks in the country. And simultaneously, it's a, it's a trauma desert. Or, you know, it doesn't have a tremendous amount of high-quality health care, you know, in contrast to New York City, which also, of course, has been a major outbreak until seeing and hearing those stories firsthand
1: of people suffering obviously it's been difficult and, all, and this is a primarily black area. i want to get into i want to talk a lot about how to be an anti-racist your book that i think is life-changing i want to talk about your new book that's coming out in a couple of weeks tell us the title of that new book anti-racist baby it's a board book it's a board i mean i can't wait i want to start because when we talk about the pandemic when we talk about what's happening right now in the world with the rebellion, the protest? You wrote an article that went up on The Atlantic this this morning. Yes. It's called The American Nightmare. To be black and conscious of anti-black racism is to stare into the mirror of your own extinction. I want to... Can I read a piece of this to you and ask you about it? Sure. Yeah. Would you rather read it or would you... Can Can I read it to you? Yeah, you can read it. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. You're using as an epigraph a quote from Malcolm X from 1964 We don't see any American dream. We've experienced only the American nightmare. And then you write A nightmare is essentially a horror story of danger, but it is not wholly a horror story. Black people experience joy, love, peace, safety. But as in any horror story, those unforgettable moments of toil, terror, and trauma have made danger essential to the Black experience in racist America. What one black American experiences, many black Americans experience. Black Americans are constantly stepping into the toil and terror and trauma of other black Americans. Black Americans are constantly stepping into the souls of the dead because they know that could have been them. They are them because they know it is dangerous to be black in America because racist Americans see blacks as dangerous. To be black and conscious of anti-black racism is to stare into the mirror of your own extinction. This is not just about the police brutality. This is not just about Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. This is about the tens of thousands of black victims of COVID. Yeah. Talk to me about this article. What do we need to understand?
0: Well, I think first and foremost, the article revolves around a very, very prominent book that was written in 1896 by Frederick Hoffman, whose who basically was a book of statistical tables and and racial data that showed not only racial disparities in in crime rates, but also racial disparities in infection rates and racial disparities in in mortality, or I should say death rates. And and so he took this massive amount of racial sort of data to proclaim that black people were not subjected to racist policies. That wasn't the cause of black disease, of, of black death and even black people being disproportionately arrested and incarcerated, he made the case that this data shows that black people are headed towards gradual extinction. And it's their fault. They are by nature or behavior, a dangerous, diseased, dying people. And to recognize anything else is to not recognize the facts. And so this idea, normalizing black sort of pain and suffering and death has only continued to this day. And so essentially, when you normalize, when you just believe that black people should be disproportionately dying of police violence or even COVID-19, you're thereby not going to challenge, let alone look for the policies that are actually behind this disproportionate black death. And so then those who are experiencing those policies that are then leading to that trauma and terror and even toil, they're going to be experiencing the American nightmare. And the reason why I use the term the American nightmare is because black people are constantly told that America is this land of equal opportunity, that police officers protect and serve, that we too have access to the American dream. And, and obviously, based on the experiences of Black people, we've really, as, as Malcolm said 50 years ago,
2: experienced the American nightmare. F. If white people are just now discovering that it's bad for black or working class people in America, they're a lot more blind than I thought. And they're a lot more choosing to be ignorant than I thought. The same problems that we're discussing today, we discussed in 1990, 1980... 1970 and 1960 and until we call a spade a spade and we say that this problem is coming from conditions that we're creating or allowing to happen as a white group of people who hold a certain amount of power do you think
3: that there's a systemic uh attempt in the united states to uh isolate poor uh and
2: minorities uh to put them in communities that can be controlled it's not an attempt at all it's successful if you look at Daly and the highways in chicago he built the highways to segregate people Mm -hmm. you know it's just no no roundabout way to do it absolutely so again speaking for all white people what can we uh what can we
3: do to uh, bridge the gap between uh, the communities of color? Should you you own barbershops? Should white people start getting their hair cut at black barbershops? I hope because so. Because there are I convers- conversations. So. On there. <laughs> yeah. so there are conversations going on
2: at those barbershops that we're not part of. And white people pay fifty dollars for haircuts. So absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I, I speak at. at colleges often, and when I speak at black colleges, and I speak at white colleges, it's a slightly different message. The message that I preach to white kids um, that are in Tallahassee, that are in Atlanta, Georgia Tech, that are in places like New York, is get outside the college environment. Find a child who is marginal or doing exceptional in school, who's a minority, who doesn't look like you, not of the same religion, not of the same background. Help that child matriculate into college. Help them by being a big brother and big sister. Help them by mentoring them. Don't give them gifts. Don't make yourself feel good. Like, hey, I gave them a new pair of sneakers. Teach them the path you were taught to help them become a successful human being. What you're going to get out of that experience is another human being that's taking full advantage of an educational system that can help them in their community. But more than that, it grows you as a human being to have empathy and apathy for someone who doesn't look like you is culturally not from your head. <laughs>
1: Right? Maybe it's just too often the example that we use. That's helpful. That's yes, that's helpful. You know? That makes sense to me. So how what is proximity? How would you define it in real anti-racism dismantling terms? I'm or would you? I'm not convinced it's necessary.
4: And there's a Same lot, thing. there's a first of all I just want to know there's a lot of anti-racism educators <laughs> who would deeply disagree with me. I'm I'm not convinced it's necessary, Renee. I, I think I think that white people are not children. I think grown white people are adults who can think critically on their own, who can read books and listen to podcasts and study history and be self-reflective and get a therapist and look at the world and say, something's not right here. Let me change the way I vote. Right? Yeah. Something's not right here. Let me give to an organization that I have researched who is trying to change this. Something's not right here. Let me go <laughs> do. I think in that process, when learning, when curiosity has come first, you find yourself in proximate relationships that do not benefit you. And I think, I think maybe that's the core of this proximate thing, right? Is that yeah. white people hear that and think, great, let me go find a relationship that benefits me to prove my relational hypothesis right or to prove that i'm nice and that you know at least one black person really likes me i think there's something missing from our proximate conversation our our national proximate conversation that is not discussing what the power dynamics are in that proximity
0: He is audible penguin random house audio presents how to be an anti-racist this is the author ibram x kendi to survival my racist introduction i despised suits and ties For 17 years, I had been surrounded by suit-wearing, tie-choking, hat-flying church folk. My teenage wardrobe hollered the defiance of a preacher's kid. It was January 17, 2000. More than 3,000 black people with a smattering of white folks arrived that Monday morning in their Sunday best at the Hilton Memorial Chapel in Northern Virginia. My parents arrived in a state of shock. Their floundering son had somehow made it to the final round of the Prince William County Martin Luther King Jr. oratorical contest. I didn't show up with a white collar under a dark suit and matching dark tie like most of my competitors. I sported a racy golden brown blazer with a slick black shirt and bright color streaked tie underneath. The hem of my baggy black sacks crested over my creamy boots. I'd already failed the test of respectability before I opened my mouth, but my parents, Carol and Larry, were all smiles nonetheless. They couldn't remember the last time they saw me wearing a tie and blazer, however loud and crazy. But it wasn't just my clothes that didn't fit the scene. My competitors were academic prodigies. I wasn't. I carried a GPA lower than 3.0. My SAT score barely cracked 1,000. Colleges were recruiting my competitors. I was right in the high of having received surprise admission letters from the two colleges I'd half-heartedly applied to. A few weeks before, I was on the basketball court with my high school team, warming up for a home game, cycling through layup lines. My father, all six foot three and 200 pounds of him, emerged from my high school gym's entrance. He slowly walked onto the basketball court, flailing his long arms to get my attention and embarrassing me before what we could call the white judge. Classic dad. He couldn't care less what judgmental white people thought about him. He rarely, if ever, put on a happy mask, faked a calmer voice, hid his opinion, or avoided making a scene. I loved and hated my father for living on his own terms in a world that usually denies black people their own terms. It was the sort of defiance that could have gotten him lynched by a mob in a different time and place were lynched by men in badges today. I jogged over to him before he could flail his way right into our layup lines. Weirdly giddy, he handed me a brown manila envelope. This came for you today. He motioned me to open the envelope right there at half court as the white students and teachers looked on. I pulled out the letter and read it. I had been admitted to Hampton University in Southern Virginia. My immediate shock exploded into unspeakable happiness. I embraced dad and exhaled, tears mixed with warm-up sweat on my face, the judging white eyes around us
3: faded. This might all be true, but in the world of money and power and fame, The value of the present moment makes very little sense. It can't be commodified or packaged or viewed on a screen. You can't deposit it somewhere safe or save it for a rainy day. James holds that the transitions of consciousness are valuable precisely to the extent that they suck us into the flow and frustrate any attempt to constrain them. They are precious because they pass away so quickly. In his studies of consciousness... In his losing a child and father, in his woodland explorations, James discovered what Emerson had described in his seminal essay, Experience. Namely, the effinescence and lubricity of all objects which lets them slip from our fingers when we clutch hardest. Sometimes it is best, therefore, not to clutch at all, but to stand close, to be in it, and to witness in James's copy of the principles of psychology, in the margins of a section of text that addresses the slipperiness of the stream of consciousness, he scrawled a single phrase. The witness. The witness isn't the willful overseer who wants to determine the outcome of an event. But ah. the witness also isn't just any bystander who simply stands by to look. The witness is detached yet involved. Engaged in a purposeless purpose to carefully testify to the unfolding of things as one sees them There is a sort of cone-like quality to speaking of the stream of consciousness And I know better than to think that I'm going to sort it all out I've struggled for decades to explain this to my students Sometimes I give up and just point to an experience had or undergone, but on the whole I do not agree with Wittgenstein that what we cannot speak about with perfect accuracy we must pass over in silence. So I will continue to struggle. Success happens in degrees. I hope there can be value, even life and death value, in partially failed attempts. The stream of consciousness is arguably James's greatest contribution to philosophy, but not for the reasons that are often discussed by contemporary philosophers. James suggested persistently in his later writings that immersing oneself in the stream and orienting ourselves to its mystery could bolster or, in some cases, save a life.